I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis 44 this morning. Genesis 44. Although we may not like them, we all recognize and respect the value of a test. A test proves a matter. A test may confirm that a student has learned the subject or is competent to do a job. A test may demonstrate that a product is functioning as it was designed to function. A test may reveal if there is disease in the body. We recognize and respect the value of a, of a test for it proves a matter. But have you ever felt as if a test was a trick or a trap? President Franklin D. Roosevelt got tired of smiling, that big smile as a politician, and decided to find out whether anybody was actually paying attention to what he was saying as he would greet people in a receiving line. On this occasion, as each person came up to him with an extended hand, he flashed a big smile and he said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. But people automatically answered, responded with comments such as, how lovely, <laughs> or keep up the good work. Nobody listened to what he was saying except one foreign diplomat. And when the president said, I murdered my grandmother this morning, the diplomat responded softly, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if a politician could get away with that today, and I'm not sure a preacher can get away with saying something like that today, but, but I find it humorous because that test or that trick proved a matter. No one was paying attention to what President Roosevelt was saying in the, that receiving line. And even when a test is a trick, it still proves the matter. In Genesis 42, in fact, since Genesis 42, Joseph has been testing, repeatedly testing his brothers. In fact, Genesis 42, verse number 15, Joseph said to them, in this manner you shall be tested. And Joseph tested his brother's honesty. And Joseph tested his brother's jealousy. And Joseph tested his brother's loyalty. In fact, I've written there at the top of your notes that Joseph repeatedly tested his brothers to prick their conscience and to measure or to prove their character. This morning now in Genesis 44, Joseph gave his brothers one more final test before revealing himself to them in Genesis 45. So from Genesis 44, I prepared a, a message titled, The Final Exam. Let's pause for prayer, shall we? God in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, our only hope in life and death. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, the light of the world. And we pray that Jesus would come again soon, per your will, God, we're eager to see Jesus. Lord, this morning as we study the Holy Scripture, I pray that you would go before us now. May your spirit be our teacher. Lord, may we understand this, this narrative and the significance of it as you've preserved it for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As Joseph's tests have been rolled out one by one, his, his brothers came to realize that God knew their sin. They had been found out. 
In fact, this morning now in Genesis 44, there is a key pivot point to this entire larger process of testing. In Genesis 44, verse 16, you have it before you, Judah declared to Joseph, God has found out the iniquity of our of your servants. And that motif is repeated. We're gonna find it recurring over and over again here eight times in this chapter. In verse eight, verse nine, verse 10, verse 12, twice in verse 16, verse 17, verse 34. And, and as Joseph is testing his brothers to prove or to measure their character, their conscience is pricked and they recognize their, their sin. Joseph first accused his brothers of, of something they had not done that is coming down to Egypt to spy. And then Joseph accused his brothers of, of another thing that they had not done, coming down to Egypt to steal. They were innocent of both of the charges, yet in chapter 44, verse 16, they acknowledged that they had been found out by God for their sin against Joseph. Let's begin reading again in chapter 44, verse number one. And he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, also put my cup the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. I would title these verses, The Conspiracy of Joseph. Number one, The Conspiracy of Joseph. 20 years earlier, Joseph's brothers had conspired in hate against Joseph. Now Joseph was conspiring in love against his brothers. For now, the, the second time now, Joseph is secretly and covertly returning his brother's payment back to them in their sacks with their grain. And Joseph did this the first time in chapter 42. I suggested that Joseph did it out of love for his brothers, for his family, because he did not want to charge them for something he could provide for them freely. And now again, I would suggest that Joseph is doing the same thing. But more than just a gesture of love and, and meeting his brother's need for grain, Joseph is testing them again to prick their conscience, to prove or to measure their character because Joseph hasn't known these men for, for some 20 years. Were they the same misbehaving, betraying brothers that he had known from his youth, or had God changed them somehow in some way? Had God done a work in their lives as God had done a work in Joseph's life? But in this case, in this conspiracy, this final test, Joseph included an extra component. Joseph had his silver cup hidden in his younger brother's sack, that it's Benjamin's sack. What would his brothers do with Benjamin when the silver cup was found in Benjamin's sack? Look at verse number four. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this one from which my Lord drinks? and with which he indeed practices divination, you have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them and he spoke to them with these same words. I would title this number two, the confrontation of the steward. Joseph dispatched his steward to pursue his brothers and confront them with the evil that they had done, namely their possession of his silver cup. Look at their response in verses seven and eight. And they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servant should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? 
This is innocence defended. The brothers had already passed one test. That is, they brought the money back that had previously been found in the mouth of their sacks. They were honest men. And they defended their innocence. Again, perhaps on occasion you've been insulted by someone's insinuation that you are guilty. And you say, I can't believe that you would think that I would actually do such a thing. I I can't believe that you doubt me. I have proven myself in the past to be honest. They were so certain of their innocence that they foolishly blurted out, verse number nine, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Okay, you asked for it, verse number 10. And he said, now also let it be according to your words, He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched, he began with the oldest, and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I could certainly practice divination. I would title this iniquity admitted. First there was innocence defended and now iniquity admitted. And they were caught red-handed as it were. And that's always a bit awkward, isn't it? When the proverbial blood is on your hands or when the proverbial fingerprints are on the weapon, when the stolen property is in your possession. And so what always happens when someone is caught in possession of, let's say, an illegal substance? And of course, the person protests, I I don't know where that came from. It's not mine. I don't know how it got there. Someone must have planted it. I've been framed, right? But on the other hand, the evidence is so crystal clear. It's there right before you. You're compelled to plead guilty and admit what you have done. And that's what the brothers here are are compelled to do, admit their crime on their faces, bowing down before Joseph in fulfillment of Joseph's dreams from years and years earlier. Now, you might be curious about the silver cup and the the divination there. I might just take a, a brief excursus and explain some of this. Joseph leveraged the superstition of his culture to impress his brothers with the silver cup. Let's let's go back, looking at verse number two. Joseph had his steward plant the silver cup into Benjamin's sack. Look at verse number five. Joseph's steward then planted the idea that the silver cup was magic into his brother's minds. Then if you look at verse number 12, where was the silver cup found? In Benjamin's sack. Look at verse number 15. Joseph restated the idea that the silver cup was magical. One Bible commentator has put it this way, in ancient Egypt, it's before you on the screen, I I didn't copy it for you in print, but in ancient Egypt, a goblet was frequently used as a means of communicating with the spirits. In some cases, small pieces of gold or silver together with precious stones were cast into the goblet over which appropriate incantations were uttered. The cup then acted as a species of Ouija board Sometimes the goblet would be filled with water and set in the sun so that the deep shadows cast in the cup could be read just as some people today read tea leaves in a cup. 
Now, of course, we know that God had given direct revelation to Joseph on a number of different occasions in interpreting his own dreams and interpreting Pharaoh's dreams without a silver cup. We can be sure here that Joseph's claim of practicing divination in verse 15 is simply one more element of Joseph's disguise and a brilliant object of Joseph's final exam in testing his brothers. You see, while some might see the silver cup and, and claim to practice divination as superstition, even Joseph's brothers understood what was happening. Verse 16, look there. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. It has nothing to do with the silver cup. God has found out the iniquity of your servants, and here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was was found. I would title this number three, the confession of the brothers. The confession of the brothers. In a, in a vague and a general way here, Joseph, Judah is confessing to stealing the silver cup, yes, but that's the presenting problem. That's the object at hand. I submit that Joseph was confessing to, to something much bigger than that. He was confessing to the guilt of the brothers in rejecting Joseph and selling him many years before. I believe at this point, verse 16, there is an aha moment, a realization of Judah and his brothers recognizing by connecting the dots, their consciences are condemning them and they're recognizing that their current misfortune, their current circumstances was not the consequence of some Egyptian superstition with a silver cup, but rather their their current circumstances and the misfortune of, of, of what was happening was a divine consequence for their wickedness toward Joseph so long ago. And it was through this testing or this trickery, if you will, that their conscience had been pricked. But even here, this is not the, the end of the final exam. Joseph's test is to prove or to measure his brother's character. How would they deal now with the situation? How would they deal with Benjamin? So Joseph continued the test, verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. This is a, a tricky test. Here, How would Joseph's brothers respond to this? Would they throw Benjamin under the bus? Would they sell Benjamin down the river? Would they discard Benjamin as they had done 20 years earlier with Joseph? And this final exam would prove Joseph's character, answering the great, great question in Joseph's mind. I'm sorry, it would prove the brother's character, and it would answer the, the question in Joseph's mind, were these the same men as Joseph dealt with years earlier in Genesis 37. And so again, follow me in verse number nine. Look at verse number nine. They insisted that the thief die and the others remain as slaves. But in verse 10, the steward changed the terms. Slavery for the culprit, release for the others. Verse 16, look there. Judah offered all of them as slaves. Verse 17, Joseph restated the terms of the steward, put forward back in verse number 10. Slavery for the culprit, release for the others. Meaning, Benjamin becomes a slave in Egypt, 
the brothers go back home to live in peace with their father. And then something marvelous happens in verses 18 and following, and I'll title this, The Cry for Mercy. The Cry for Mercy. Judah pled with Joseph to spare Benjamin. Now, don't miss this. Who was it years earlier that first suggested the selling of Joseph into slavery? It was Judah. And so now Judah is a different man than he was 20 years earlier, and he he presents this amazing appeal. It's a moving speech. It's a powerful plea for mercy. In fact, Bible commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse says it's the most moving address in all of the word of God. Judah asked in verse number 18 for a favorable hearing. Look at verse number 18. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. This is a good start. This is appropriate in the ancient court of a prime minister. You need permission to speak freely. You don't barge in and blurt out your ideas. Well, some do, but it's not a good idea. You may not live to tell about it. And so Judah respectfully establishes his subordination to Joseph, again, unwittingly fulfilling Joseph's dreams that his brothers would bow before him. But Judah is desperate in the situation. Verse number 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young, His brother is dead, that's Joseph, and he alone is left of his mother's children, that's Benjamin, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. Judah is reviewing the circumstances that have brought him to this point. Some of the details in verses 19 to 23, of course, Joseph knew well, for he was part of them. But now these other circumstances, Joseph doesn't know because they're what took place after the brothers had gone back to Jacob in preparation to return to Egypt for the second time, verse 24. So it was when we went up to your, to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for we will not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. That's Joseph and Benjamin. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces. That's Joseph, and I've not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, Benjamin, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. What is Judah doing here? He's reviewing the past happenings. And he's, in his cry for mercy, he's, he's recounting the story for Joseph. But what's the point of this desperate plea? Verse 30, now therefore when I come to your servant my father and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. 
so your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Judah stated the current hardship. And folks, the hardship at hand was not the well-being of the brothers. Joseph could throw them in prison. He could make them his slaves. He could execute them. That wasn't the problem. The hardship would be for their father, Jacob, or Israel. And the brothers had spent the last 20 years of their life watching their father grieve over the loss of Joseph and set his affection upon Benjamin. And it was unthinkable to them that they would return home to their father without Benjamin. In fact, verse 31, Judah says he will die. Finally, verse 32, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father. Judah is saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad. I'll, I'll exchange myself for him as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Folks, I, I don't know what Joseph was hoping for from this final exam that he gave his brother. However, what, whatever Joseph hoped for, I don't think he could have hoped for anything better than this. For Judah, as a representative of the brothers, not only stood by Benjamin, he cried out for mercy on behalf of Benjamin and their father Jacob. And Judah, who had once sold Joseph into slavery, offered to become a slave himself if Benjamin could go free. Letter D in your notes, Joseph's, or, I'm sorry, Judah sacrificially offered himself. And folks, you have to appreciate the significance of what is taking place here. And Judah passed the test. In fact, he aced the exam as far as Joseph could measure or prove there was true change in his brothers. And this final exam, Judah got an A plus. So that when Donald Gray Barnhouse calls this the most moving address in all of the word of God, Perhaps that's true. I know your notes are complete, but, but follow me in conclusion here. There are, other, there are other moving addresses in the word of God that are noteworthy. Think with me of, of Moses. 400 years later, after this event in Genesis 44, Moses led two million Jews out of Egypt across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And there the Bible says that God met with Moses on the mountain in a cloud of smoke and, and fire and, and God gave Moses the sacred law. Of course, down at the base of the mountain, the, the Hebrew people were fashioning a golden calf in idol worship as they had seen in Egypt and they fashioned that calf and they worshiped it. When coming down from the, mo the mountain, Moses was horrified upon seeing their wickedness. And so with great anguish, he returned back to the top of the mountain to speak with God. And there Moses presented an appeal, a cry for mercy. The Bible says, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. 
And Moses had just seen the sin of Israel. They had rejected his leadership. They had rebelled against God, yet he still loved them and he wanted to save them. Think with me of the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Jew. He was proud of his heritage, yet in the book of Romans, he wrote that his people's present unbelief and their future destiny cursed them. But out of love for them, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself could be accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And folks, like Moses, so also Paul was willing to be damned if it could result in the salvation of the sinful, rebellious, unbelieving people that he loved. And so follow me here in conclusion. Judah was willing to give himself for Benjamin. Moses was willing to give himself for the children of Israel. Paul is willing to give himself for his own people. And each of them hoped that they wouldn't have to do it. In fact, none of them did. But there's one more. Think with me of Jesus Christ. Think with me of Jesus. John 3, 16, you know it well. God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 5, verse 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love toward us. God's love for us gave Jesus to be a substitute. Jesus died in our place for our sin. What great love is that? John 15, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Folks, the acid test of true love is giving oneself for another. And would you know that that is also the test that Jesus put forward to us, those who follow him. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. I think we have a picture in Genesis 44, a picture of love for the brother love for the Father. And if we were put to the test, even if the test was a bit of a trick, would we demonstrate the same love? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this account. What a remarkable transformation that had taken place in the lives of Joseph's brothers as they were tested, as their conscience was convicted as they recognized that you had found out their sin. And so, Lord, they expressed sincere, genuine love as modeled by Joseph toward them, as modeled by Moses toward Israel, as modeled by Paul toward his people, and as modeled by Jesus Christ to us. Lord, I pray that you would change us because of these things. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.